The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. From the top, the First Amendment guarantees freedom of speech, religion, and assembly. Good lad. The second. Right to bear arms. Scratch that one. Hey, wait a minute. This is not multiple choice. This is the Bill of Rights. They don't know that. We're the founding fathers now. It's a grave responsibility. We don't have time. Now, the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable search and seizure, right? The Fifth provides for due process and the right against self-incrimination. The Sixth. What's the Sixth? Uh, equal rights for all, regardless of race, religion, or musical preference. It is not. It is now. 18 minutes until the gateway opens. Oh, the hell with it. You're on your own, lad. Wing it. Seven twenty eleven. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show today once again, where as always the number is 519-661-3600 to reach us on open line or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. If you have any comments to make on the show, and we do have a few comments expressed about our show to be covered this week, finally, Robert. Yes. (laughs) Boy, are we getting bad at that. But um, basically, our theme today is going to be, we're going to be talking about the monarchy and various forms of government. In some ways, it's almost an extension of our show last week. Some good remarks from our show last week from our listeners. Yes, I want to talk about that, too. But uh, with the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, William and Kate, touring our own constitutional democracy, or monarchy, called Canada... As we speak, it turns out that we'll be examining that monarchy today as a form of government, but also other forms in a comparison and take a look at some of our own viewpoints, which I think I'm still forming as I'm sitting here, Robert. Mm. <laughs> it's amazing how, what, a, what a discussion we started last week, and I'm sure it isn't going to resolve itself for a while. But I think we want to take it from a little bit of a slightly different context. I have discussed the monarchy on the show before very briefly. Uh, the more we look at it, the more we like it, don't we, Robert? Actually, yes. Uh, to tell you the That's truth, the many years ago I was uh, very Republican in nature. I, I didn't see Me the too. value of the monarchy, but having researched it a little more, having uh, thought about property rights, our own rights, constitutional rights, uh, enshrined rights, common law, um, I've come to actually uh, endear myself to the monarchy. I think it has a great role to play in our in our democracy. Well, that's something we want to take a look at a little later today, but first, we've got to get around to some business that we just haven't gotten around to for okay, a while. Okay, this is Marco's letter, is it? Uh, among other things, okay. yes. And yes, I know yes. that if... Uh, I'm going to get to that actually second. I wanted to get to some very quick announcements, oh. okay? Because we have... We, we actually... I think we scheduled these into the show, what, three or four times, including Marco's letter. Hmm. Last week it was on the show. A couple of weeks before that it was on the show. We just never got to it because yeah. we left it for the last quarter. So Robert and I got this very brilliant idea... We'll do it in the first quarter. Sure. <laughs> For a good suggestion. Eh? But just a couple of quick updates on a few issues that, that, that have touched our show. And, uh, of course, um, just uh, as a note, Ann Coulter, who has been a guest on the show, has a new book out. It's called Demonic. 
And apparently it includes stuff about her Canadian tour. I don't know if we're mentioned or not, but if we are, somebody you can give us a call and let us know. I haven't actually checked the book out yet. Also, uh, another small note, Geert Wilders has been acquitted. Yes, excellent. And so we'll obviously be talking about that more on a future show. Just wanted to get these in quickly so to let you know we're aware of it. Also, we had a caller, or a caller, a listener, Jack, who corrected us very quickly on our show a couple of weeks ago where we were speculating about an episode of Seinfeld. Oh, and uh, <laughs> and we sort of speculated and concluded that the character playing the Postmaster General was the real one, but uh, listener Jack straightens out. Yes. Real name, but but just an actor. Wilfred Brimley was actually uh, the actor. Yes, and uh, now Seinfeld's show, of course, has been known to have real-life characters make cameo appearances in their mm-hmm. roles, so I can understand why we might have thought that. I, you know, I was wondering, why would he say those terrible things about the post office? <laughs> and... Uh, so those, those are just a few of the things I wanted to get out of the way. See, we got them done, Robert. Good. Isn't that amazing? Now, a couple of things. Uh, Marco is a regular listener, has been a listener for quite a while. And uh, actually, he wrote us, or he didn't write, he wrote on, I guess this was on Facebook. I saw his comment. He's t- saying that, I guess last week, he says uh, it was probably one of his favorite episodes of Just Right. We actually liked and, it, too. And... Marco, I have to agree with you. You know, I know you're a long-time listener, so I know that when you say that it's one of your favorite episodes, you're taking a large sampling. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I would call that sh- last week's show better than previous shows or more exciting or anything like that, but if I were to tell someone what is just right about, what would be the show I'd want to pick as representative of what basically all our shows are about, last week's show was it. And I think it was largely to do with the fundamental material we had in it. I was very happy that, um, you know, of all the episodes we chose to honor John Hospers, mm-hmm. to his memory, I, we couldn't have picked a better one. And, of course, this, the, the, um, the scenes from the movie um, John Adams uh, were just powerful, yeah. incredibly powerful. And I'll be referring to them again today. Because uh, really, you know, everything we talk about on this show revolves around those few conversations that that we played out of the John Adams clips last week. Everything from freedom of speech to constitutional issues to fundamental freedoms and the nature of individuality itself. These were all these discussions in those few brief minutes. So, yet last week's show holds a warm spot in my heart as well. Now... Uh, that wasn't the first time Marco wrote us. He wrote us a couple months ago, too, with respect to another show, um, our 200th show, I think it was. And he had a couple of questions. I want to get to the third one first because I might not get to the other two till the end. I'm going to hold off on them. So, Marco, I'm going to answer your third question before I get to your first two. And um, if we have time, we'll get to the first two. If not, we'll try again later. But the third one's the main one we wanted to get to. And you asked that you had a question that pertains to Ayn Rand's view of the differences between conservatives and liberals. And he writes, quote, I took a look at the Ayn Rand lexicon and the heading conservatives versus liberals, which cites an article in Philosophy Who Needs It called Censorship Local and Express. And although I agreed with everything in it, there was one thing that confused me a bit that I was wondering if you guys could maybe clarify. When Rand said, quote, each camp wants to control the realm it regards as metaphysically important, each camp Um, No, each grants freedom only to the activities it despises, end quote. I think I understood that okay, but it was the example 
that she used about the conservatives and the rich that threw me off when she said, quote, Observe that the conservatives insult and demean the rich or those who succeed in material production, regarding them as morally inferior, and that the liberals treat ideas as a cynical con game, end quote. Are conservatives not known for being in favor of the rich? I realize that they're usually just as socialists as their so-called opponents, but I know that whenever you hear a conservative criticizing the welfare state, proponents of it say, well, what about you guys giving corporate welfare to corporations? Or, or they talk about tax breaks for them, uh, for them being immoral. Any thoughts? Well, I have a few. <laughs> any any on you, from you, Robert? Oh, any? first off, um, most of the larger businessmen that I'm aware of uh, support liberals. Okay. Right off the bat, they don't, they're not necessarily conservative supporters. And secondly, the conservative ideology is one of altruism, um, not necessarily greed or avarice or even profit-making. It is, if you're going to make a profit, give it away. Then you're being moral. Well put. You know, I, you know Rand herself commented that it's merely a paradox, not a, con- not a contradiction. And I think the confusion around this is justified. Um, are conservatives known for being in favor of the rich is, I guess, the basic question. I think it would be a serious mistake to judge any political party, except maybe Freedom Party, on the basis of what it is for. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well put, yes. The other existing parties are not for anything in particular, and certainly not for freedom. But they're always against a lot of particulars. So to ask, are the conservatives known for being in favor of the rich is really kind of a backward question. The question that might correspond to reality is, are conservatives less against the rich? <laughs> you know, but, but even the rich is a phony collective to begin with, right? Yes. Um, so you, you get off track right away. I think it's also because of what might be described as that spiritual religionist contempt for money, you know, which you kind of referred to a bit, Robert. You can't take it with you. Attitude, right? And I was wondering, well, take it where <laughs> exactly? <laughs> and um, so the conservatives are largely not concerned with the so-called wealthy, so they really don't go out of their way to tax the rich, as do the materialist liberals. They really do. But the, the irony is... Even Rand pointed out, she said, the problem is you can't tell the two apart anymore. I don't even know if the distinction is, is um, valid anymore. And this, the distinction uh, is greater in the United States than it is here in Canada, I think, to begin with. I, I, yeah, and I think, too, that they're known to be associated with favoring the, quote, rich over the poor, because uh, that's an association fabricated mostly by the liberals and NDPers. Right, because of policies like lowering in corporate income taxes, sure. because of occasional inconsistent policies like that, because it's inconsistent to lower in taxes the way they are when you continually increase spending. The spending is the real taxation. So what they're just doing is, is trading uh, taxes for deficits and future debts. So um, I guess that might be why conservatives are more, more associated with being in favor of free markets and capitalism, which is not really you know, what they are. They, they never are. If, if you go by what they legislate, we know that they're not. And, um, you know, in the past, they've merely failed to regulate the economic market relative, I guess, to the, what the other parties would do. It's not like that they wouldn't share their philosophy. So, um, you know, it's at this juncture, I think that the principle of granting freedom to the activities it despises kicks in. The only reason there's really any free markets under conservatism is because that's the one area they don't wish to control, 
right? That's what Rand kind of said, because they don't consider it important in that sense. It doesn't stop them from passing economic controls when the proper political interests push them hard enough, but left to their own devices, conservatives consider the regulation of morality to be more important. Hence, stricter drug prohibition laws, more jails, family values. Um, so-called built, family values. So-called, yes. Everybody uses that term. And, but since free markets lead to wealth, even if they exist by default, conservatives are associated with the wealthy. Yes, so, they're thought they actually so, care for the wealth when that's, that's actually what they don't care for. That's right. Yeah. I think Marco said it, that they despise it. Well, I don't think the word despise is right. I think that they just don't care about it. They don't care about the markets. That's why they don't legislate them. Yes, and it they works. They care about your behavior, your personal moral behavior. It works the other way, too, I think. This false association has been promoted by the liberals and other socialists who are driven by these fictional class struggles they have, rich versus poor, which they use to disguise their blatant materialism, make the rich pay. You know, that's what's where they're really coming from. And that's also why, for the same reasons, that liberals are associated with freedom of speech, gay marriage, pornography, an end to drug prohibition, when in fact they really don't care about those things. That, that's actually <laughs> the point. Since they don't care about those things, right. they're quite willing to let people so do they leave they them want. alone. That's right. Yeah. Liberals care about other people's money, and that's what they regulate and control. So they can't be capitalists. They cannot support a separation of um, economics and the state. You know, it's just not possible for them. So that's my short answer about um, Marco's question. You know, I went to the original essay that Marco referred to, and I noticed Rand said uh, she continued by saying that control to both camps means the power to rule by physical force and pointed out how neither camp, liberal or conservative, holds freedom as a value. Um, The conservatives want to rule man's consciousness, the liberals his body. Now, this is true philosophically and psychologically. I've seen it um, over the years in practice. It's not a thing you, you think of immediately when you're talking conservative and liberal. But um, that's my quick answer to that question. Now, And I knew it would take the whole quarter hour to get, get around to it. So, Marco, if we have time, at the end of the show, we'll get to the other two questions that you had in your letter. But I think that was the main one that you wanted to have answered. I want to carry on now to our, I guess, larger theme. And I'm going to use an excerpt from a a fun show that I enjoy watching from time to time. And in the following excerpt of selections from the TV series Sliders, you ever watch that show? Oh, yeah, sure. It's a great show. Well, we find our interdimension traveling adventurers in an America that is ruled by a monarchical system of government. How about that for an alternate dimension, eh? The irony, though, at the end of this episode, it's, it's entitled The Prince of Wales, spelled W-A-I-L-S, okay? And uh, was it the travelers, in the end of the show, they befriend the prince, and then they place the prince in the position of leading a new American revolution around the same basic rights and freedoms and, and you know, rights that, that you see in the current U.S. Constitution. In other words, they transplanted the values of individual rights and freedoms originally found under their current republic system to a constitutional monarchy in this fictional episode of Sliders, where formerly, by the way, an absolute monarchy existed. And and that's always the thing I, I think is funny when people criticize the monarchy. What do they throw at you? They throw at you a monarchy where the king is feared, everybody's terrified of him, uh, he can wish them to death in two seconds flat if they just look at him the wrong way, that kind of thing. Henry right? VIII or a George that III. Kind of an issue. That's the kind right. of thing, yeah. And, uh, but of course... That's not the kind of monarchies we are talking about. And again, 
what are they really uh, about. So this is uh, from that show, and when we return, we're going to be talking about that very subject. This San Francisco is part of the British states of America. The Americans lost the Revolutionary War, and they're still governed by a monarchy. I have no problem with the Brits. We made top of the pops over there. Yeah, more to the point, the British make a virtue of minding their own business. With a little luck, and so long as we don't interfere with the status quo, there's no reason why we shouldn't spend our time here in blissful anonymity. You know, I could live with spending six days in this suite. But we're going to have to order out because the food here bites. Who in their right mind would eat kidney pie? It says here, King Thomas is missing on the battlefields of France. The sheriff of San Francisco has been named acting regent of the Western Americas until Prince Harold can be crowned next week. Yeah, well, forget about the war in France. This is the good stuff. The Playboy Prince caught in a love nest with teenage vixen and her 80-year-old grandmother. <sighs> I can't believe people in the 20th century would actually allow themselves to be governed by a monarchy. Oh, they are undoubtedly waiting for a precocious college kid from another world to teach them the error of their ways. Right. People say, Sheriff, you're the only point of view we'll ever need. But today I want to do something different. I want to throw open the last segment of our show to my critics. Now, I want this to be a genuine exchange of views. Whatever you think about the king, his policies, or me, his humble servant, well, now's the time to get it off your chest. All right, now, who's going to be first? I think you're doing a great job. I love the new format. Thank you, and welcome back, Miss Miller. But frankly, you look terrible. Have you lost weight? Well, I'm sorry that I'm looking terrible, especially to you. I know what it is. It's the strain of working round the clock, covering up for the prince. I know that you're doing the best that you can, sir, but it's the prince's fault. All our tax money going for his coronation, his girlfriends. There's nothing left for the little people. Everyone knows that... I am the servant of His Royal Highness and of his appetites. He is royalty. I am a public servant. You're too kind. You're too generous. Let's have a big hand for Miss Miller. You know, there are moments like this when you sense the goodness of the people of America. Thank you, ma'am. All right, we've got time for one more question. Sir, welcome. Um... I, I believe that taxation should be limited to what's necessary for services rendered by the government for the people. And furthermore, I think the Oakland Raiders have it right when they say that the people should be allowed to govern themselves. The monarchy should keep it. Well, sir, I'm afraid the people have answered for me, <laughs> which is, of course, why... Everything I say is right. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> Just like me, everything I say is right. Just right. <laughs> Just right. We must be, you know, rep- or uh, monarchists at heart, I guess, eh? Because everything we say is right. 
Or precocious thought, 20-year-old honor students. Yes. I thought that was a pretty funny uh, excerpt there. And, but it asked a lot of interesting questions and touched on a lot of interesting issues that are far more serious. And I bounced into one of those inadvertently on the weekend, which kind of got me going on this whole subject again today, Robert. And it was something I saw on Facebook, written by a guest of ours, but on a different subject. Chris Goodwin, I don't think he's going to mind me bringing this up, because I thought it was a great question. And he wrote, and I, and I jokingly gave him a response the first time around, but uh, he wrote initially, he says, I don't remember swearing that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. And then he just left that comment there and people started leaving their own comments. Some of which, by the way, were repulsive. Um, that's what got me going, but that was after I made my first comment. And um, I just jokingly said, because I thought it was a lighthearted comment, I said, not remembering isn't an out. <laughs> but it looks like you're doing a little swearing about it right now. <laughs> and I put a little smiley face beside that, right? But I thought the question is a classic. It's, it, it comes from that Jeffersonian spirit, and I kind of share that spirit. And I'll explain exactly what spirit I'm talking about because we played it last week on our show. The very clip to which I think this sentiment speaks. It was when Jefferson was sitting with um, Benjamin Franklin and, and, and Adams, and he, he reached a conclusion. He says, and I quote, I am increasingly persuaded that the earth belongs exclusively to the living and that one generation has no more right to bind another to its laws and judgments than one independent nation has a right to command another. Now, that's Thomas Jefferson, to which, of course, um, Adams leans over to Franklin and he says, uh, Dr. Franklin, Mr. Jefferson's pet topic is not the artful arrangement of political power, but the cordoning off of a space in which no power exists at all. And then turning to Jefferson, Adams says, You, sir... You are a walking contradiction. And I thought in that quote was said so many things. Number one, I think that, you know, Jefferson talks about how one generation can't bind another to its laws and, and things like, you You know, can you, con did you consent to being born, Robert? Did you consent to coming into this world? No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Uh, but you do consent to being here by continuing to be here and not leaving of your own accord. Exactly. Yeah. And, so th there was an interesting issue there in that, on the one hand, you have this legitimate desire. You don't want to bind future generations to your whims, do you? That would be a terrible whims, thing. no. No. And so where do you draw these lines? And that, of course is, of course, is always the issue. Where can you create this space in which no power exists at all? I think that's the challenge of constitutions, of um, forms of government. And that's something I want to look at right now because... You know, after some of those, um, how did you call them, despicable comments showed up on that same <laughs> little yes. string, I, I added the following comment. And I said, don't make the mistake of confusing the royal family, which is symbolic, with Canada's constitutional monarchy, which is virtually the opposite of an absolute monarchy. Under a constitutional monarchy, the royals must also swear their allegiance to their subjects. It's a two-way street far more complex than anything you'll ever see discussed in public forums. Under this form of government, Canadians can actually enjoy freedoms and protections that Americans cannot count on. That's why people like Mark Emery 
are sitting in a jail cell under America's Republic, while here in Canada, the organic relationship between queen and subjects tends to mitigate irrationally harsh treatment under the law. And then I concluded with God save the queen. And that kind of uh, ended the conversation in that string. But I think that's, you know, and a lot of it's very symbolic, and I think people are missing the point a lot. Um, For example, look at Canada's situation. We're under a constitutional monarcher. We've abolished the death penalty from coast to coast, haven't we? Yes. Um, Not that I'm opposed to the death penalty for when you know a certain criminal's you know, it's not out of concern for the criminal that I'm opposed to the death penalty. Let's put it that way. It's out of concern for the justice system and for the innocent that we don't want to have a death penalty. I, we should have life in prison. Imprisonment mean life. Unfortunately, we don't have that, and that leaves our whole, uh, quote, capital punishment system in disarray. But... Um, in America, you've got this patchwork quilt of capital punishment laws. Some states have no death penalties. Others have conflicting standards of fundamental justice even. So you can be uh, nailed for something in one state and not another. So you've got this whole conflicting issue. It's as if um, it's a country that hasn't even resolved those things. I think you were talking about um, republics being more fixed in law. But I think uh, the biggest thing that America had, its biggest mistake, and there are others we'll talk about near the end of the show regarding Constitution, but unfortunately, um, Richard Nixon, under his, uh, quote, right-wing conservative government, launched America's greatest failure in self-inflicted catastrophe, mm-hmm. the war against drugs, and um, which is just a, a war of a government against its own citizens. I don't, I, I don't think that was the nation envisaged by Adams, Jefferson, or Franklin. And regrettably for Canada and the rest of the world, America has extended that destructive prohibition policy into the very fabric of nations around the world, pouring fuel on the fires of terrorism, war, famine, and destruction that couldn't be possibly justified for the purpose of keeping people off drugs, right? And uh, which is ostensibly a voluntary and consensual activity in the first place, right? So there you have it. I wanted to, so, so with the comparison, I was looking, you know, when I look at, I've said before that there's no guarantee that a republic or a constitutional monarchy will either oppress you or, or keep you free. I think that's a more organic thing. You know, I, I, I see republics as being more corporate. And in the United States, a republic was made necessary by the lack of historical lineage that could possibly lay claim to the realm of the land. You know what I mean? If you're going to start a new country from scratch with a whole new bunch of people, it's not a single family. It's all different people. The corporate structure is almost all you have, and that would be a republic kind of government. Uh, You sure wouldn't want to start off from scratch with a royal family or a monarchical system of government. And um, so to create something out of nothing, I guess, uh, where no nation existed before, requires a legal abstraction, and that would be the republic. And are republics fixed in stone? Perhaps more. Do monarchies constantly evolve? We see that happening all the time, and which is one of the reasons I think monarchies are a little more, again, organic, because they're more fluid, more changing with the time. You see, we're seeing it happening right here in Canada with, with um, with the royal tour. But um, monarchies, I think, are organically natural. They're an outcropping or extension of first come, first served. Might is right. You know, which family or tribe was the first to maintain control by force over an area large enough and long enough to be called a realm? 
over which you could exert that force and maintain law and order until you actually, quote, earn the consent of the people that were living on, quote, your land. You know, you see that natural extension, eh? So, um, clearly, this family is a direct blood lineage from that original lineage. It doesn't always have to be that way. No. Uh, I'll talk about that later on when we talk about the kings of Rome, yes. by the way. Well, as I said, neither form of government is a guarantee of fundamental freedoms, nor a guarantee of oppression, and uh, nor will a constitution necessarily do either. But remember, Rome was a republic. It rose, it fell. Dictatorships have risen and fallen. And freedom and capitalism have, have risen and are regrettably now falling due to the resurgences in political tides the world has seen many times before. But what was never seen before in any recorded history of our knowledge of mankind was a period like the one unleashed during the 19th and 20th century, a period in which, again, for the first time in history, the individual was regarded as the fundamental political unit. And the individual had rights, mostly pertaining to the right of free choice and self-determination. And, you know, before all that, average lifespans were one-fifth to one-half of what they are today. Before that, people didn't fly, go to the moon, have incredible, this incredible power in our home. Uh, you know, the poorest person in our Western society probably lives better than the richest monarch of the past in terms of what we have at our disposal, in terms of luxuries and, and television and turning on a, uh, having a toilet for heaven's sakes is a luxury beyond belief. So, um, you know, there never was a tradition of any of this in previous human history. Tradition was not what the founding fathers of the U.S. were about, although the U.S., I don't think would have ever happened were it not for Britain. That accident of history fell to Britain, a monarchy that of necessity discovered so many of the secrets first described by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. So, from my point of view, those who would do away with our constitutional monarchy so far have only been people who want to replace it with something worse, Robert. Some form of majority rule dictatorship masquerading as democracy. That's what I see as the movement away from the monarchy. So I think just as we limited the power of the monarchy, so too the proper next step is to limit the power of government itself for the same reason we limit the royals. And I'll have more to say about that in the final segment of today's show. We're going to take a break now, and when we return, we're going to be talking about the Senate in Rome. Is that right, Robert? When in Rome. When in Rome. Well, I'm waiting to get there. We'll be back after this. My lords, gentlemen... Pray silence for Ralph Douglas Christopher Alexander Gurney, the 13th Earl of Gurney. The aim of the Society of St. George is to keep green the memory of England. We were once the rulers of the greatest empire the world has ever known. Ruled not by superior force or skill, but by sheer presence. Yeah. I give you, England, this teeming womb of privilege, this feudal state whose shores beat back the turbulent sea of foreign anarchy, this ancient fortress still commanded by the noblest of our royal blood. This ancient land of ritual, this precious stone set in the silver sea, 
The toast is England, this precious stone set in the Silver Sea. underground heating system here, up through in the main audience chamber here, and Pilot's wife's bedroom is here. Having grabbed his wife, we inform Pilot that she's in our custody, and forthwith issue our demands. Any questions? What exactly are the demands? We're giving Pilot two days to dismantle the entire apparatus of the Roman imperial estate, and if he doesn't agree immediately, we execute her. Cut her head off. Cut all her bits off. Send them back on the hour, every hour. Show them why not to be trifled with. And of course, we point out that they bear full responsibility when we chop her up and that we shall not submit to blackmail. No, no blackmail! They let us white the bastards. They take everything we had. And not just from us, from our fathers and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. You're all right, Stan. Don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct? Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and the sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct, and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Huh? Education. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's something yeah. we'd really miss, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, Education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health. What have the Romans ever done for us? And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in on the conversation. And you can also find all of our shows at um, justrightmedia.org. And from there, you can uh, link, to on, uh, link to us on Facebook and give us a like there. We'd appreciate that. Oh, one other quick thing to mention on yeah. that. Um, current year's episodes are now also available in high-quality MP3s, which is something new we just added, and we're going to be doing that to all of the episodes eventually. So yep, you this, have a choice. This, year, this, is, this year's is already done and up there. It's quite an obvious link. So, uh, yeah, give a listen on our website to our previous shows. Now, that short bit of fun was from Monty Python's Life of Brian, of course. I love that clip. Yeah, what have the Romans ever done for us? Yeah. But before I get into talking about the Romans, I'd just like to just uh, put in a couple of points on the previous segment mm -hmm. where we were talking about Chris's letter about not giving an allegiance to the Queen. 
Well, f- two points. First of all, there's at any given time a number of generations living together. If a generation is 25 years old, right now there are four generations of people living Well, that speaks to Thomas Jefferson speaking how future generations shouldn't bind the following one. You're right. There's five generations live simultaneously. Yeah. Well, if it's, if it's 25 years old, I'd say four. Okay. The fifth one is... Well, give or take. <laughs> Infirm yeah. and in the hospital somewhere. Or so young they're not yeah. voting yet. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So given the fact that there are four generations living together at any one point in time, uh, it's very difficult for one generation, let's say the youngest of them, which are usually the more militant and revolutionary, to impose their will on the remaining three. Yes. So it works both ways. It does. And it's not it's... just the old folks who are imposing their will on the young. The will of the young is often imposed on the old as well, especially in a time of change and revolution. And the second point I'd like to make to Chris's observation about uh, not not remembering swearing allegiance to the Queen or the rules of laws of Canada is that sometimes there are laws which have to be obeyed and which stand the test of time and which are there to protect us and are objectively rational. Uh, rational. They are there because of an objective rationale they have stood the test of time they're there to protect you and and sometimes you just have to obey i'm sorry <laughs> you know you just can't throw out every law just because it's well, old su- suppose i decided that i didn't want to consent to the government that i found myself living under mm-hmm. i'd have a few options and you can't leave yeah well if i can't leave that's one less option <laughs> you just took yeah. one away from me Not that, like that you... was that was one of the options i was going to mention yeah michael like took that one <laughs> right um but the other one is Okay, even if I'm under a monarchy, um, okay, let's say I'm totally out of it, don't want to get along with anyone, I want to separate. Well, then I'd have to become my own state, pick up the sword and see if I could take on king and country. You've got that option. And if I can start my own country and make it work better than the one that exists now, that's what will happen. Because that is kind of how history was formed. We we, we don't see it that way because it's so established. That's right, Bob. I remember seeing a clip of Joey Smallwood when there was a protest outside of Confederation Building in Newfoundland, and he was basically looking down at the protesting rabble, and he said, it's one thing to protest, but if you don't know what you're going to replace the the current government with, what's the point? Precisely. You've got to know what you're talking about to protest. You know, know what you want to replace it with, otherwise you're leaving it open for anarchy. So anyway, back to the Romans. Or starting with the Romans. Yeah, starting with <laughs> Romans, more like it, yeah. Um, a unicameral senatorial government, which is what the Roman Empire was, by the way, when uh, Romulus first uh, created it or discovered it over 2,700 years ago, has its virtues. Now, the king of Rome, uh, Romulus was a king, established his senate. And about, believe me, it was a triple E senate, believe it or not, Bob. A triple E Senate was the first Senate under Roman law. It was elected, it was equal, and to a large extent, it was effective. The very style of a Senate Prime Minister Harper would like to see here in Canada. By the way, I would like to see that as well. Now, the first senators of Rome may have been appointed by King Romulus. That is the very first senators. But subsequent senators were elected by the tribal curia, the various regions uh, surrounding Rome, the city. 100 senators from each of the three founding tribes of Rome. So it was equal in makeup, based on region. And of course, it was to gradually become effective, even to the extent that it it elected as a body the new king 
once the previous king died. And that's what I was getting to in the previous mm-hmm. clip, Bob. We don't have to have a her- her- hereditary monarchy. A monarchy, you can actually elect a king. I would. It's I understand that, but mm-hmm. um, to the extent that the that the king has no real power in a given situation, it, it's a moot point. In this particular and point, I think, the king had almost all the power. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different situation. But in our case, with our constitutional monarchy, the lineage is a very symbolic representation of the empire. Yep. It's a human uh, symbol rather than a documented symbol in that sense. It's interesting and, to see that the Roman Senate went from a triple E Senate to an appointed or hereditary unequal dysfunctional senate later on hundreds of years later um, it eventually had little power under the divine emperors and uh, was no longer elected by the people based on region actually canada's present-day senate more closely resembles the senate of rome just before its fall (laughs) (laughs) it's absolutely true i agree you know but it's not too late for us we can learn from history and learn from the mistakes of others for one thing our senate is becoming more elected as individual provinces like alberta and now saskatchewan will hold elections for their senators which must still be appointed by the prime minister but still that's a start also our 105 senators are chosen to represent the regions of the country rather than chosen based on population of their regions. Now, by that, the prime minister is sort of pre-consented to choose the, whoever the voters in that province. And this prime minister has, yes. but other prime ministers have uh, deliberately chosen not to select the ones that have been elected. Oh, by I see. It, yeah. It's not, it's quote, not written in stone yet. It wasn't a particular no, prime minister. No, I remember, okay. wasn't it um, Alberta uh, elected a, a list of, a slate of senators? So the next prime minister and could change it I all again. I think it was Jean Chrétien who said, well, I'm not going to go by that list. I didn't say okay. I'd do that. And he he pointed his own. Um, now, under our own, reg- our own system, the West, Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes each have 24 senators. Newfoundland and Labrador has six. The territories each have one. Now, while this is obviously not perfectly equal, there is an attempt to fill the Red Chamber with a relatively equal number of senators from the four regions of the country. An ideal makeup would obviously be an exact number of senators representing each province rather than the greater region that they're part of. The, The effectiveness of the Senate is constrained for a number of reasons. Constitutionally, of course, it can't propose any money or appropriation bills. But more importantly, it respects the fact that since the members are not elected, they traditionally do not overturn any legislation brought to the chamber from the elected lower house of parliament. Recently, there have been calls, usually from the NDP and other socialists of their ilk, to abolish the Senate outright. This is because in my estimation, that the House of Commons is a battleground for competing ideologies, just the kind of place socialists like to take control of. The Senate, on the other hand, while if elected, may still follow party lines, the senators will also have to follow the wishes of the provinces they serve as well as the party they serve. In fact, party loyalty is much weaker in the Senate since appointments are only limited by the mandatory retirement age of 75 and they don't have to kowtow to any party whip to get re-elected since they're usually there for many, many years. Rather than the abolishment, I'd like to see it reformed to a triple E Senate. But that aside, Bob has come up with a great and remarkable suggestion. Oh, boy. Talked about this on the phone the other day. (laughs) I'm going to be eating this one, won't I? (laughs) No, you won't. I actually like your suggestion. Bob says, why don't we reform the Senate, fine, 
and at the same time, abolish the House of Commons. <laughs> I, I thought I was joking at the time, then we started thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, I think you were just being a little uh, <laughs> joking at the time, but you know something? I think that has merit. I gave it some thought. Before Confederation, as it is today, each of the provinces, colonies, or dominion had their own elected parliaments. Most even had an upper chamber called the Legislative Council, effectively a Senate. In these houses, laws are made reflecting most of what is debated in the House of Commons. Why should the Federal House of Commons be discussing education or health care when these matters are constitutionally a, a provincial jurisdiction? Why should the Federal House be entering into treaties with other nations when such decision decisions should be made in an upper house, which is more accurately representative of the confederated colonies, provinces, and, and a dominion? Most or it could probably be argued all of the decision-making that goes on in the House of Commons could either more appropriately be discussed in the individual houses of each province or in an elected and equal Senate. When involving matters not of a national nature, the debate could be decided in each province. If the matter involves the nation as a whole, then the Senate would be the more appropriate chamber for discussion since the nation is more properly defined as a confederation of 10 provinces rather than a great amorphous mob of 35 million people. Perhaps after abolishing the House of Commons, we can then have the Senate tackle another thorny issue. Why do we still have a hereditary monarchy? Could we not, as is done in ancient Rome, have the elected Senate elected a king, elect a king as well? And I'm going, to get, I'm going to talk a little well, bit more about this. Well, why would you even this. have a monarchy in that case? I mean, actually, I'll just talk about this. If you're reinventing I government, I don't think you want to reinvent government. I'll talk starting. about this in a minute. Right now we have to cut to a break. And when we come back, I'll just finish my, uh, my concluding arguments about why electing a king might be a good uh, option. Okay, have. and also uh, I think to this break, um, I just want to say something about sure. this episode of Star Trek. Uh, this is from the Omega Glory, which I think is possibly one of the worst episodes they ever did. But symbolically, what happened in this episode, it was about a reassertion of American values and what the Constitution was about. And it makes a very important statement, and that's why I chose it and concentrated on it in the way that we did, because it, it really has some interesting points to make as silly an episode as it was. We'll return after this. Captain, I've managed to loosen this grill somewhat. If the motor on yours is as old... I can't even get at it. It'd be on me in a moment. Keep working on the window if we're ever going to regain our freedom. Freedom? Freedom? Spock. Yes, I heard, Captain. That is a worship word. Yang worship. Will not speak it. Well, well, well. It is our worship word, too. We live with the Combs. Am I not now a prisoner of the Combs as you are?
Cloud William, Chief. Also son of Chief. Guardian of the Holies. Speaker of the Holy Words. Leader of warriors. Many have died. But this is the last of the calm places. What is ours is ours again. I plaguely iron neck to flagon to pep like for stand. Unto the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, liberty and justice for all. He spoke the holy word. You know many of our high worship words. How? In my land, we have a tribe like you. Where is your tribe? Up there. One of those points of light that you see at night. When you would not say the holy words of the Ivanista, I doubted you. I did not recognize those words. You said them so badly. Without meaning. No, no. Only the eyes of a chief. They see the Ivanista. This was not written for chiefs. Hear me. Hear this! Among my people, we carry many such words as this from many lands, many worlds. Many are equally good and are as well respected. But wherever we have gone, no words have said this thing of importance in quite this way. Look at these three words written larger than the rest with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. That what you called Eid Plebnista was not written for the chiefs or the kings or the warriors or the rich or the powerful, but for all the people. Down the centuries you have slurred the meaning out of the words, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution, these words and the words that follow were not written only for the Yangs, but for the Koms as well. The Koms? They must apply to everyone, or they mean nothing. Do you understand? Welcome back. And some fine words there, I think, in that Star Trek episode. If not not overly (laughs) melodramatic, but uh, still (laughs) an interesting episode. It was was a very apropos thing to to say just one comment I wanted to make on that Ayn Rand you know he, that was almost something that Ayn Rand said and she said the one thing we have to always remember about a constitution and she said it's always forgotten evaded and you have to repeat it she says a constitution is a limitation on the government not on private individuals that it doesn't prescribe the conduct of private individuals only the conduct of government that it is not a charter for government power but a charter of a citizen's protection against government that's what a constitution is supposed to be about that's what the american constitution yeah. well was a free constitution about, but i don't think that's what the canadian constitution is about. no canadian constitution in my well, estimation it? is a limit on people's um, 
people's liberties. It's been taken that. It may not have had that original intent. I'm not sure because the uh, particular provincial leaders at the time were well, rather statist, including uh, Trudeau, who was rather statist. So I think it's more of a, not a delineation of rights, but a delineation of special favors to special groups, our constitution. And I'm not very pleased with our constitution. I think the American Constitution is uh, is much more on the mark when it comes to protecting people's rights. Well, it was unique in the sense that it was a complete break from what came before. Oh, yes. Whereas our situation is more uh, an evolutionary sense and an ev- evolutionary process in the sense of individual rights and a devolutionary process in the sense of absolute power. And when we finally get to that ideal point is anybody's guess that we have to keep at it. It's not something you can leave on the back burner. Yeah. Let's just get back to what we were talking about before with uh, Rome and mm-hmm. the election of kings. Uh, you've been following the, the royal tours that have been happening over the last year or so. Well, as closely as I follow royal tours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I sort of enjoy them. Uh, I'm not what you would call a, a, a nut about them or anything like that, but I, I do well, you take watch an the interest whole, in it. Yeah, you watch yeah, the Yeah, I whole, watched the wedding, okay? Yeah. So yeah, I like the wedding, yeah. I've been following the protests of the royals, and over the past few years, it seems that there are three basic objections to the monarchy, Bob. First of all, the money. It costs millions each time they visit, yet the royals are some of the richest people on earth. Why can't they fund their trips themselves, they say? By the way, just as an aside, ask yourself how much it costs the American president each time the... uh, the Americans, each time the president decides to tour the country. Yeah. You know, it's just as... Even gone. up here, if he comes yeah. up here. Yeah, just the same. The same thing. Now, the second objection is the fact that It's ours... not their expense. It's our expense, yeah. for heaven's sakes. The second <laughs> objection is the fact that our sovereign and our heirs are not born in Canada. And while the Queen is certainly styled the Queen of Canada, she's, as, she's British, as are her heirs. Why, the protesters ask, should we have a foreign monarch as our sovereign? Now, the third objection involves the hereditary nature of succession. Becoming the sovereign is a matter of privilege of birth, not merit by any measure. Now, a senatorial form of government in Canada could follow the ancient Roman model and elect a monarch once the reigning one dies. This eliminates the foreign concern, because you would elect a Canadian, as well as the privilege concern, the money to conduct the uh, obligatory glad-handing tours. I would never go there will always be a problem. Whether or not we have a British royal, a homegrown elected monarch, or a president, the money is always a factor. you got to protect your sovereign. That's it. There's just no way around the money, so forget it. I, I find a lot of the objections well, just simply to be envy. Now, there are, these, these are just some of the thoughts on Senate reform that I've given before and, and the monarchy, and I know full well that none of these suggestions will be given any serious consideration. But if even just a few of us start to think a little outside the box with maybe a nod to history and tradition, I think our evolving form of government might just evolve into something we can all live with. That is, unless you're a French Quebecer, in which case there's nothing (laughs) that will please you. You're going to say something, Bob? Well, you know, we live in a constitutional monarchy. I guess you could call it the king's domain if you wanted, hence a kingdom. I think what we are working towards is to a free dominion, a freedom, okay, instead of a kingdom. <laughs> I like that. And so I'm thinking, can you have a free kingdom, a monarchy? I don't see why not. Can you have a free republic? I don't see why not. So why not, <laughs> right? Because it's also possible to have an unfree one. And that's the direction our political trend is taking us, whether monarchy 
or republic. Well said. So what we need now is a free dumb, whether monarchy or republic. And that's my last word on the subject today. We've got to go. And we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey towards that freedom. Okay, Robert, <laughs> until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you. God bless the Queen. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be all right Well, I see by the old clock oh! on you. Oh! Something bothering you? No, I meant to tell you. Someone called you. Oh, yeah? Did yeah. leave a message? Well, he wouldn't tell me. It was too important. Will he leave a number? Yeah, I believe it was six. Six? Well, that's when you're supposed to meet him. Oh, well, where am I supposed to meet him? Well, he wouldn't say it was too important. What did he sound like? Very important. Can't you remember anything? Well, he did speak with an accent. What kind of an accent? He didn't say. Well, I guess it's not as important as all that. I want to tell he you... He did say something about life or death, though. Did he say whose? No, he did say he'd call back, though. Did he say when? Well, don't worry. If he calls back, I'll take a message. Oh, that is... <laughs>